This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Narration by Jordan Wilson. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF format. Conspiracy in Philadelphia, Origins of the United States Constitution by Dr. Gary North. Publisher, Dominion Educational Ministries, Harrisonburg, Virginia. This book is dedicated to the members, living and dead, of Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, who for over two centuries have smelled a rat in Philadelphia. Chapter 3. The Strategy of Deception. Quote by Luther Martin, 1788. Quote, Before I arrived, a number of rules had been adopted to regulate the proceedings of the convention, by one of which seven states might proceed to business, and consequently four states, the majority of that number, might eventually have agreed upon a system which was to affect the whole union. By another, the doors were to be shut, and the whole proceedings were to be kept secret, and so far did this rule extend, that we were thereby prevented from corresponding with gentlemen in the different states upon the subjects under our discussion. A circumstance, sir, which I confess I greatly regretted. I had no idea that all the wisdom, integrity, and virtue of this state, Maryland, or of the others, were centered in the convention. End of quote. The U.S. Constitution is a covenantal document that was drawn up by delegates to a historic convention. This convention had been authorized by Congress, operating under the Articles of Confederation, in February of 1787, quote, for the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation and reporting to Congress and the several legislatures such alterations and provisions therein, as shall, when agreed to in Congress, and confirmed by the states, render the federal constitution adequate to the exigencies of government and the pre- preservation of the Union, end quote. It was on this explicit legal basis alone that three of the state legislatures sent delegates to Philadelphia, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York. Madison cites these provisions in Federalist 40, claiming that the convention honored the first provision, suggesting alterations truly necessary to create a national government, while it legitimately violated the second, bypassing the legislatures. Clinton Rossiter called this the short-range bet of the framers, that they could get away with a four-step transgression of the rules under which the convention had been authorized. This is why men such as King Rufus King and Sam Adams believed that the convention had been unconstitutional and dangerous. Virginia delegate George Mason had written a letter in late May stating that, quote, most prevalent idea I think at, mo- at present is a total change in the fe- federal system and instituting a great national council, end quote. From the opening of the convention, no consideration was given to a mere revising of the Articles of Confederation. Governor Edmund Randolph of Virginia opened the main business of the convention on May 29th by giving a speech on why a totally new government ought to be created, and he then submitted the 15-point Virginia Plan, or Large States Plan, to restructure the national government. According to the to New York's Chief Justice Yates, who became an opponent of the Constitution and who made notes for his personal use, but not for publication, quote, he candidly confessed that they were not intended for a federal government. He meant a strong, consolidated union in which the idea of states should be nearly annihilated, end quote. A handful of disgruntled men. The articles were completely scrapped by the delegates. There is little doubt that This had been the original intention of the small group of men who first promoted the idea of the convention, beginning with the meeting held in spring of 1785 at Washington's home at Mount Vernon. 
These men, in the words of Forrest MacDonald, had been, quote, chagrined by the impotence of Congress, the recalcitrance of state particularists and Republican ideologues, and the seeming indifference of the population at large, end quote. This phrase, quote, the seeming indifference of the population at large, is highly significant. It testifies to a lack of concern and the absence of any sense of national crisis on the part of the public in the year of the Great Convention. The sense of crisis was felt mainly by the nationalists at the convention, the sense of crisis that they might miss the moment, or in contemporary terms, miss the window of opportunity. Americans think of the Philadelphia Convention as the place where all the giants of the Revolutionary War era met to settle the fate of the Republican experiment. Some giants did show up, not all of them. In retrospect, historians have usually defined giants as those who did show up and did stay with the program, meaning Madison's coup. The victors write the textbooks. McDonald's description of the opening day of the convention is far closer to the truth. Some of the best men stayed away. Quote, the list of distinguished Americans certain not to come was large. Only one of the great diplomats of the revolution, Franklin, would be there. John Jay of New York and Henry Lawrence of South Carolina had not been chosen, and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were in Europe as ambassadors. Most of the great Republicans would likewise be missing. Thomas Paine was also in Europe, hoping to spread the gospel of Republican revolution. Neither Sam Adams nor John Hancock of Massachusetts nor Richard Henry Lee and Patrick Henry of Virginia chose to come. Henry did not because he said, quote, I smell a rat. The others offered no excuses, end quote. Henry was a dedicated Bible-believing Christian. Sam Adams was either a Calvinist or influenced by Calvinism. Hancock was a Freemason. Adams was not. Henry was not. And Richard Henry Lee also seems not to have been one. Henry was the primary opponent in the debate over ratification. For this, he had been relegated into outer darkness by the historians. I agree entirely with M.E. Bradford's amusing assessment of the Modern Historical Guild's treatment of Henry. Quote, Our scholars, most of them rationalists and neo-federalists, had a vested interest in producing Henry's present reputation, that he was a simple-minded country politician turned demagogue, a populist trimmer whose talents happened to serve his more far-sighted contemporaries when the revolutionary crisis came, that Madison was the was the fellow to read and Jefferson before him or certain selected Boston radicals as reprinted under the auspices of the Harvard University Press, end quote. A handful of men had decided to take the new notion, nation down a different path. It was not enough to amend the articles by taking such steps as repealing all internal tariffs and establishing gold or silver coins as legal tender for a national currency. They wanted a completely new system of national government. This would have to be achieved through a coup. Congress was unwilling and probably unable to undertake such a radical revision of the Articles in 1787. Yet the Articles of Confederation, as the legal bylaws of the national government, specified that all changes would have to be approved by Congress and then by all of the state legislatures. Quote, and the articles of this confederation shall be inviolably observed by every state, and the union shall be perpetual, nor shall any alteration at any time hereafter be made in any of them, unless such alteration be agreed to in a Congress of the United States, and be afterwards confirmed by the legislatures of every state. End quote. Article 13. Congress and the state legislatures would therefore have to be bypassed. This required some very special preparations. It required, in short... A conspiracy. Sworn to secrecy. 
To conceal the nature of this attempted coup from the public, especially from any members of Congress who did not attend the convention, the debates in Philadelphia were closed to the public. Can you imagine the hue and cry of the press and news media if such a convention were closed to them today? No scoops for Pulitzer Prize-seeking reporters? No details at 11? So secretive were the were the attendees that Madison, who was the primary engineer of the coup and its unofficially designated scribe, refused to allow his transcripts to be published until after his death. They did not become public until 1840. This code of silence was mentioned by Warren Burger shortly after he announced his resignation as Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, who informed a national television audience, quote, I think one of the reasons of the success of the Constitution was the iron code of silence that bound all of the members who were there, end quote. It was not just Madison who felt so bound. Robert Yates, who was at the time Chief Justice of the State of New York, attended the early days of the convention. He left in disgust, convinced that the convention served ill purposes. He had taken notes of the proceedings through July 5th. Yet, even this opponent of the Constitution refused to publish these notes. In a public transcript of them, published first in 1838, his anonymous biographer took great care to explain that Yates had not broken the convention's code of silence. Quote, Chief Justice Yates though often solicited, refused during his life to permit his notes of those debates to be published, not only because they were originally not written for the public eye, but because he conceived himself under honorable obligations to withhold their publication. These notes, after his death, fell into the hands of his widow, who disposed of them, and they are thus become public. The delegates were in sworn to secrecy in advance. Every member honored this oath. Even those participants who soon opposed the whole procedure as illegal never revealed what had gone on inside those walls, not even in their old age. Why not? In a modern world filled with leaks to the press and everyone else, we can hardly imagine that it might, what it might have been that persuaded these men to keep their silence. I have read no history book that has even raised the question. But of this we can be confident. They all feared some kind of negative sanctions, either internal or external, for breaking this oath of secrecy. So tight was the lid on leaks that the debates were conducted on the second floor of the State House. No one could listen in. Throughout the summer, the sidewalk outside the State House was covered with dirt. This reduced traffic. This was done, according to one observer, to reduce noise. When the convention ended, they took the final step. They handed all the minutes over to George Washington to take back to Mount Vernon. They knew that no one in the nation would have the audacity to tell George Washington that he had to hand over the evidence of what was in fact a coup. Madison's notes state specifically that, quote, The president, having asked what the convention meant, should be done with the journals, whether copies were to be allowed to the members, if applied for, it was resolved, that he retain the journal, and other papers subject to the order of Congress if ever formed under the Constitution. The members then proceeded to sign the Constitution, end quote. In short, if the coup was successful, then the new Congress would gain access to the records. If not, no one would have any written evidence to prove anything except the untouchable George Washington. On that basis, they signed. Historian Jack Rakhove argues that this element of secrecy was the result of years of near secrecy by the Continental Congress itself. To this extent, he implies, the secrecy of the convention was a fitting end to the old Congress. This is a strange argument. Nothing in Congress history rivaled the degree of secrecy that was imposed in Philadelphia. Rakhove is nevertheless correct about the degree of secrecy at the convention. Quote, for the most part, 
remarkable aspect of the convention's four-month inquiry was that it was conducted in virtual absolute secrecy, uninfluenced by external pressures of any kind, except for occasional rumors, many of them inaccurate, that American newspapers published. The general public knew nothing of the con- convention's deliberations, end quote. Bypassing Congress. Instead of submitting the Constitution to Congress for debate, as originally agreed to by all the delegates, and also as demanded by Congress, Article 7 of the proposed Constitution passed over the Congress and announced that ratification by nine state conventions would suffice to abolish the Articles. The state legislatures would be bypassed. This was a calculated gamble by the members of the Constitutional Convention. Madison believed that he and the Nationalists could control these one-time state ratification conventions to a degree that they could not possibly control the state legislatures or Congress. On this, Madison proved accurate. The convention adopted the idea of a one-time plebiscite as a means of short-circuiting any opposition to the Constitution within the existing governments. They would try to persuade the existing governments to surrender sovereignty to independent conventions likely to be controlled by the conspirators. The loss of either New York or Virginia would have been fatal. Hence, he, Hamilton, and Jay wrote a series of articles in New York newspapers. These have been known as the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers were propaganda devices that were crucial in order to win ratification. Winning ratification was necessary to persuade the voters to sanction the legitimacy of the coup. The ratification process was in fact a plebiscite for or against the legitimacy of a coup. The plebiscite was necessary to override the objections of the state legislatures, which alone had the legal authority to revise the Articles, which in turn required unanimity. As historian Richard Buell Jr. has pointed out, although the Constitution has been designed to remove the national government from the immediate reach of the populace, its power was still ultimately dependent on public opinion, end quote. The public was allowed to ratify the coup. After that, the voters were to be kept at bay. This is why the Nationalists had to submit to their opponents' demand for the Bill of Rights in 1789. The Nationalists resented having to do this, but they had little choice in the matter if the ratification of 1788 was to become a legitimizing event. Once sanctioned by the ratification process, the original conspirators became retroactively founding fathers. The fact that the convention had been a coup was concealed from the general public. The victors and their allies wrote the textbooks. Therefore, the Anti-Federalists became, in retrospect, men of little faith. Only in recent years have the Anti-Federalists been taken seriously as political thinkers. Biblically speaking, this direct appeal to the people in the states to ratify the Constitution was either an act of covenant renewal or it was an act of covenant creation. There is no doubt which the convention had in mind, the latter. This is clear from the debates in the convention, the ratifying conventions, and the Federalist. The delegates recognized clearly that a new government was being established. To ratify the Constitution was therefore an act of covenantal discontinuity. It was a revolt against existing judicial authority. Patterson of New Jersey admitted this at the convention, quote, If the Confederacy was radically wrong, let us return to our states and obtain larger powers, not assume them for ourselves, end quote. Were the convention's leaders Christians? Were the leaders of the convention Christians? After all, many of them belonged to churches. M.E. Bradford concludes that 50 of the 55 attendees were Christians as determined by church membership. The answer to the question, however, is not resolved simply by an appeal to church membership.
As Margaret Jacob remarks regarding members of the subversive Knights of Jubilation, a free-thinking, pantheistic Dutch secret society of the first half of the 18th century, its members maintained church membership in Calvinist Walloon congregations throughout their lives. Quote, the church gave them a social identity and the hint of irreligion which would have destroyed the reputations and probably their businesses, end quote. We therefore need to examine in greater detail the religious opinions of three of the most famous of the framers, Washington, Franklin, and Madison. The most influential member of the convention was Washington. He is also the subject of the most widespread campaign of misinformation, George Washington's religion. Washington was a member of the Anglican Church all his life. Officially, he was a communicant member, but he never took communion in a church, even though his wife did. He would rise and leave the church as soon as communion was about to be served. When challenged publicly about this by the rector of Christ Church in Philadelphia, Bishop William White, he later apologized indirectly by way of a U.S. senator and promised never again to attend the church on communion day, a promise that he apparently kept. Dr. James Abercrombie has been assistant rector of Christ Church during Washington's presidency, and he did not mince words in an 1831 statement, quote, that Washington was a professing Christian is evident from his regular attendance in our church. But, sir, I cannot consider any man a real Christian who uniformly disregards an ordinance so solemnly enjoined by the divine author of our holy religion and considered as a challenge to divine grace. Here was the strange situation. George Washington was formerly a communicant member who systematically refused to take communion. The institutional problem here was the unwillingness of church authorities to apply formal church sanctions. Any church member who refuses to take communion has thereby excommunicated himself. A refusal to take communion or a prohibition against one's taking communion is what excommunication means. Self-excommunication is excommunication, just as surely as suicide is first-degree murder. Nevertheless, the churches to which Washington belonged did not take official action against him by either requiring him to take communion or by publicly excommunicating him. It was this disciplinary failure on the part of these churches that led to the public legitimizing of Washington as a Christian. This failure later indirectly legitimized the Constitution that he conspired to impose on the nation. Without Washington's support of the actions of the Convention, the Constitution would never have been ratified. But Washington was deemed either too powerful or too sacrosanct to bring under church discipline. A failure of sanctions here, at the heart of the Church's sanctioning process, the Communion Table, reveals the extent to which 18th century Christianity had abandoned the very concept of sanctions. This ecclesiastical failure was reflected in the colonial political order throughout the period, but especially after the ratification of the Constitution. The churches were subsequently brought under a new kind of discipline, formal removal of Christianity from the National Civil Covenant by means of the constitutional prohibition of religious test oaths. The churches reaped what they had sown. They had refused to impose God's negative ecclesiastical covenant sanctions, thus God imposed his negative sanctions on them. This was the lesson of the book of Judges, one repeated throughout church history. Jordan is correct. Quote, Where there is compromise with sin, the very sin becomes the means God uses to chastise his children. Our sins become our scourges. End quote. The sin of our day, as he points out, is Baalistic pluralism. There is very little evidence in Washington's public communications that he accepted the doctrine of the Trinity. Bowler insists that not once in his voluminous letters does he actually mention the name 
of Jesus Christ, although announcing universal negatives is always risky. Washington refused to commit to public pronouncements any statement of his personal faith besides a commitment to divine providence, except during wartime he attended church once, once a month. Thus concludes Bowler, if to believe in the divinity and resurrection of Christ and his atonement for the sins of man and to, to, and to participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are requisites for the Christian faith, then Washington, on the evidence which we have examined, can hardly be considered a Christian, except in the most nominal sense. The key to understanding Washington's public religion is found on the page facing the title page of J. Hugo Tatch's book, The Facts About George Washington as a Freemason. There we find William's 1794 painting of Washington in the regalia of Grand Master of a Masonic Lodge. It was an official painting. His lodge at Alexandria paid $50 to the painter. Washington had served as Grand Master of the Alexandria Lodge in 1788 and 1789. When he was inaugurated President of the U.S., he was therefore a Grand Master, the only Mason ever to be inaugurated President while serving as a Grand Master. Later in his presidency, on September 18, 1793, President Washington, dressed in full Masonic regalia, along with the Grand Master of the Alexandria Lodge 22 and the Grand Master Pro Tem of Maryland, laid the southeast cornerstone of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. President Washington proposed, and Congress authorized, the laying of 40 milestones to mark the boundaries of the city. Prior to 1846, Alexandria, Virginia was part of the territory of Columbia. On April 15, 1791, the cornerstone of the city was laid at Jones Point in Alexandria. It was laid by Lodge 22, Washington's Lodge. The White House, then called the President's House, had its cornerstone laid on the southwest corner October 13, 1792. The Washington Monument looks very much like a Masonic project, and it was. Subsequent Masonic-administered Capitol cornerstones were laid, Senate and House, July 4, 1851, Capitol, 17, September 18, 1932, Capitol, July 4, 1959. The laying of cornerstones had a religious purpose in the colonial and early Republic eras. The practice of having Freemasons lay the cornerstones of cities and public buildings was widespread in the post-revolutionary era. This had been true in England for decades. Professor Bullock writes, Masonry's connections with civilization and the Republic, created in large part by the new fraternal language of virtue, learning, and religion, received ultimate confirmation in the spread of cornerstone ceremonies. In the years after the Revolution, and especially after 1790, American officials increasingly called upon the brothers to solemnize public enterprises. The fraternity anointed bridges, boundary stones, Erie Canal locks, and the universities of Virginia and North Carolina, government buildings such as Massachusetts and Virginia State Houses, and memorials to the creation of the Republic, such as Bunker Hill and Concord Minutemen monuments, also were baptized by the symbolic corn, oil, and wine. Even churches received Masonic blessing. The practice of Masonic cornerstone laying began in England, but it took on a particular significance in a country attempting to redefine its metaphorical foundations. The American ceremonies were part of a self-conscious attempt to create new images that could celebrate and inculcate revolutionary ideals. During the colonial period, civic ritual had centered on the monarchy and its underpinnings, the elite and the church. The revolution called each into question. 
The overthrow of the king's rule undermined the power of the hierarchy he had symbolized, and the separation of church and state weakened the ability of a single church or clergyman to represent religion itself. Rebuilding the foundations of society, post-revolutionary America found Masonry's Republican ideals and symbols a means of incarnating the new order of the ages, end quote. Let us return to Washington's Masonic career. He was initiated into the lodge at Fredericksburg on November 4, 1752. In the 1780s, his name was proposed as Grand Master of a proposed United Grand Lodge of all military lodges, but the various state Grand Lodges refused to authorize the creation of such a lodge. No national Grand Lodge ever came into existence. Carter's account of Washington's first inauguration as president is illuminating. Quote, on April 30, 1789, Washington took the oath of office as President of the United States, administered by Chancellor Robert R. Livingston, Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of New York. General Jacob Morton, Worshipful Master of St. John's Lodge in New York City, the oldest lodge in the city, and Grand Secretary of the Grand Lodge of New York, was Marshal of the Inauguration. It was one of his duties to provide a Bible for the occasion. Morton brought from the altar of St. John's Lodge the Bible upon which Washington placed his hand while repeating the obligation to uphold the Constitution of the United States and then kissed the sacred volume to complete the ceremony. End quote. You will not read in the textbooks that 33 of Washington's generals were Freemasons. You will also not read that Lafayette was not given command over any troops until he agreed to be initiated into Union Lodge No. 1, at which ceremony Washington officiated as Master Mason. But such was the case. Washington presided over a procession in Philadelphia on December 27, 1778. After the evacuation of the British, dressed in full Masonic attire, he marched through the city with 300 other Masons, and then held a Masonic service at Christ Church, which became his congregation of preference during his presidency. As president, he received many honors from local lodges. His written replies to them were generous. He never wavered in his attachment to Freemasonry. In a letter to King David's Lodge No. 1 of Newport, Rhode Island, written on Sunday, August 22, 1790, Washington wrote, quote, Being persuaded that a just application of the principles on which the Masonic fraternity is founded must be promotive of private virtue and public prosperity, I shall always be happy to advance the interests of the society and to be considered by them as a deserving brother, end quote. In several letters, he referred to God as the Supreme Architect. A representative example is his letter to Pennsylvania Masons, December 27, 1791. Quote, I request you will be assured of my best wishes and earnest prayers for your happiness while you remain in this terrestrial mansion, and that we may thereafter meet as brethren in the eternal temple of the Supreme Architect. End quote. John Edsmo, in his book-length defense of the Constitution as a Christian document, takes seriously Washington's outright lie. It can be nothing less, in a letter to G.W. Snyder in 1798, that he had not been in a Masonic lodge, quote, more than once or twice in the last 30 years, end quote. One does not become the Grand Master of a lodge by attending services once or twice every 30 years, but one can certainly fool two centuries of Christians, Christian critics by lying through one's wooden teeth about it. The problem is, Grand Master Washington's word to Mr. Snyder is trusted by Christians. The documentary record is not. That he may have been a Christian in his private beliefs is possible, though his attitude toward the church betrays a woeful misunderstanding of Christian responsibilities. He did possess a personal prayer book written in his own hand, which he called 
daily sacrifice. It contained familiar formal set prayers such as this one, quote, I beseech thee my sins, remove them from thy presence as far as the east is from the west, and accept for me, of me for the merits of thy son Jesus Christ, end quote. This sounds good, but similar Trinitarian prayers are published in the Ahiman Raison, the constitutional handbook for the ancient Masons. He perhaps was a closet Trinitarian in the way that John Locke was. Nevertheless, when it came to his public life, he was a Masonic Unitarian. Of him, it can be legitimately said, as Mark Knoll, in fact, says, quote, In short, the political figures who read the Bible in private rarely, if ever, betrayed that acquaintance to the public, end quote. In contrast, Patrick Henry was a member of the Protestant Episcopal Church, and he took regular communion. While he was governor of Virginia, he had printed at his own expense Soame Jenny's view of the internal evidence of Christianity as an edition of Butler's Analogy. These books he gave to skeptics he would meet. He never joined the Masonic fraternity. He wrote to his daughter in 1796, quote, Amongst other strange things said of me, I hear it is said by the deists that I am one of their number, and indeed that some good people think I am no Christian. This thought gives me more pain than the appellation of Tory. End quote. Benjamin Franklin's Religion In order to modify the argument that Franklin was a deist, Rushduni cites Franklin's June 28th plea at the Constitutional Convention that they pray to God in order to resolve their differences. Then, speaking of Jefferson and Franklin, he writes, quote, that both these men were influenced by deism, among other things, is certainly to be granted. But unless one charges these statements off as the most errant kind of hypocrisy, it becomes equally clear that even stronger colonial influences were at work here. Here in clear and forthright language from these men is Calvinism's, Calvinism's predestination and total providence, and at the same time the near Unitarian exclusion of Christ from the Godhead. God is not seen as the absentee landlord, and not only reason, but more than reason is appealed to. It becomes clear that in view of the mixed linguistic, religious, and philosophical premises, no facile classification can be ventured." End quote. On the contrary, a very accurate, facile classification can be ventured, the one which Rush Jr. appeals to over and over in his discussion of the French Revolution, the providentialism of the Masonic theological system. Franklin becomes the, became the grand master of the most influential Masonic lodge in France, the Nine Sisters, Neuf Sueur, in 1779. He had been present when the lodge initiated Voltaire in 1778, four months before Voltaire died. Christian authors who cite Franklin's famous prayer request should inform their readers that only three or four of the delegates voted to sustain it. The motion was opposed by Hamilton and others, and it did not come to a vote. James Madison's Religion Historian Robert Rutland is correct regarding James Madison's view of religion. The former student of Witherspoon at the College of New Jersey had a dream. That dream was the creation of a secular republic. He had spent an extra year in the postgraduate study with Witherspoon studying Hebrew, ethics, and theology, so he knew what Christianity is. He wanted no part of an explicitly Christian republic, neither did Witherspoon. He worked hard to see to it that such a republic, which ex existed at the state level under the Articles of Confederation, would not survive. Quote, he was a guiding force behind the Mount Vernon Conference, 1785, and the subsequent Annapolis Convention, 1786, where with other choice spirits he planned out the set of maneuvers which finally led to the Great Convention in Philadelphia the following May, end quote. 
Madison was a dedicated man. As we shall see in chapter 4, what had long motivated him was his commitment to remove the religious test oath, first from Virginia politics and then national politics. He achieved both of these goals within a three-year period, 1786 through 1788. Madison is often called the father of the Constitution. Intellectually speaking, it was John Adams, the American ambassador in England at the time of the convention, who was an equally dominant figure at the convention because of his detailed studies of the state constitutions, especially his pre-convention three-volume work, Defense of the Constitutions of the Government of the United States. His model of the, quote, balanced constitution was an important influence at Philadelphia. Nevertheless, it was surely Madison who was the father of the convention, with Washington sitting, sitting silently as the godfather. It was Madison who, more than any other man, broke the national covenant with God. Conspiracy. Errant hypocrisy? Rush Dooney asks rhetorically. Not at all. Errant conspiracy. These men were conspirators. They knew exactly what they were doing. Their political opponents did not, nor did the opponent's confessional heirs. The Articles of Confederation had stated clearly that, quote, no two or more states shall enter into any treaty, confederation, or alliance, whatever between them, without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled, specifying absolutely the purpose for which the same is to be entered into and how long it shall be continued. End quote. This is why the conspirators tried to to surround the proposed constitution with an air of legality by stating in the preamble, quote, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, end quote, etc. The specified time limit was perpetual, quote, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our prosperity, end quote. But Congress had not authorized any such treaty, confederation, or alliance. The conspirators knew it, especially the men, the man who made the coup possible, George Washington, quote, more than most men, comments Gary Wills, he showed an early and unblinking awareness that the Philadelphia Convention would engage in acts not only irregular or extra-legal, but very likely illegal. John Jay had alerted him to this problem as early as January. End quote. Jay's fears were only partially allayed when in February Congress authorized the convention, but only to suggest amendments to Congress. On March 10th, Washington wrote to Jay, quote, in strict propriety, a convention so holden may not be legal, end quote. But they proceeded anyway. They knew the whole thing was illegal, a subversive act of revolution. Half of them were lawyers, and they had read their Blackstone. Blackstone had commented on the convention parliament that had called William III to the throne in 1688 and 89. It had been legal, he said, only because James II had abdicated. Blackstone failed to mention the less than voluntary circumstances of the king's departure. Blackstone wrote, quote, The vacancy of the throne was precedent to their meeting without any royal summons, not a consequence of it. They did not assemble without writ and then make the throne vacant, but the throne being previously vacant by the king's abdication, they assembled without writ, as they must do if they assembled at all. Had the throne been full, their meeting would not have been regular, but as it was empty, such meeting became absolutely necessary. End quote. The American throne was occupied in 1787. Congress had not abdicated. Delegates of several states had been issued writs by their state legislatures. These writs expressly prohibited the substitution of a new constitutional document. Those who came to Philadelphia for any other purpose were conspirators. Yet most of those who came to Philadelphia had a death sentence in their pockets against the existing Confederation and also the authorizing Congress. It was this well-organized conspiracy that had control over the institutional levers that made possible the events of the Revolutionary War era, 
quote, that transformed the entire political and social structure of the 13 colonies in less time than it now takes to send a First Amendment case from appeal to the Supreme Court, end quote. The Masonic Connection James D. Carter wrote his doctoral dissertation under Professor Walter Prescott Webb, one of the most distinguished American historians of the mid-20th century. The dissertation was published by the University of Texas Press as Masonry in Texas. Webb was laudatory. Quote, after reading Dr. Carter's book, no one can doubt that Freemasonry has exerted an influence on the nation and the state which cannot and should not be ignored. End quote. Carter began with the history of the colonial lodges in the early 18th century. He includes an 80-page chapter on, quote, Freemasonry and the American Revolution, end quote, and a 30-page chapter, Freemasonry and United States Government. He exaggerates the number of Masons involved in the formation of the Union, but his basic presumption is correct, that they were very influential in the process. Leaders on both sides of the constitutional debate were members of Masonic lodges. There is a problem in knowing precisely how many of the participants were Masons. Lodge membership was not always flaunted by members, and historians have not paid much attention to the subject. Tatch said that 18 of the 56 signers of the Declaration were Freemasons, and 18 of the 39 signers of the Constitution. Roth reduced this to possibly a dozen signers of the Declaration. Heaton placed it at nine. Heaton says that 13 of the 39 signers of the Constitution were Masons. Bedford, Blair, Brearley, Broom, Carroll, Dayton, Dickinson, Franklin, Gilman, King, McHenry, Patterson and Washington. Of these, five had been, or had later become, Grand Masters. Edmund Randolph was also a major Masonic figure in Virginia and a major figure of the convention, but he did not sign the document because of doubts, although he later supported his ratification at the Virginia Ratifying Convention. He had been a former military aide-de-camp for Washington, and he had been the official who assigned the charter documents that created Alexandria Lodge No. 39, later No. 22, when Washington, as its first or charter master, served as Grand Master. Does Lodge membership of several prominent nationalists prove my thesis regarding the Constitutional Convention as a Masonic coup? No, because men on both sides of the Constitutional debate were found in the Lodges, just as Evangelical Christians today are in the Lodges despite two centuries of protest from the historic Reformed churches and traditional dispensational leaders. Daniel Shays was a Mason, yet it was his rebellion in Massachusetts that so frightened the nationalists. What has to be considered in assessing the accuracy of my thesis regarding the convention is the theological character of the Constitution itself. Was the Constitution a civil covenant modeled along the lines of Masonic theology? Was it closer to the Masonic ideal than the existing state constitutions were? In other words, were the terms of judicial and political discourse shaped by the Masonic worldview? It is my contention that Masonry did shape the terms of discourse, translating the near-impersonal mathematical providentialism of Newton's creator into the language of the average man. The Mason's grand architect of the universe was, in fact, the Newtonian deity. Why ignore colonial Freemasonry? Carl Van Doren, in his popular biography of Franklin, writes, Freemasonry in America has been social and local, with little influence, little influence in politics. This was the end quote. This was the standard view as recently as 1989. Masonry was merely clubbery. But as the nagging question remains, what other intercolonial club produced so many leaders during the American Revolution? The textbooks ignore all of this. Masonry is seldom discussed as a factor in American history. It appears only in chapters devoted to the anti-Masonic political party of the 1820s and 1830s. This has long annoyed Masonic historians. Freemasonry is a major missing link in early American historiography. 
More than this, it is the missing link. This is not true only of American historiography. Margaret Jacob has observed a similar lack of interest in the Masonic connections in English history. Quote, Despite the importance of Freemasonry for the enlightenment of whatever variety, this originally British institution has received scant attention from British academic historians. This is a particularly unfortunate gap in the historiography of the 18th century, not only for intellectual but also for political history. End quote. She is careful to distance herself from conspiracy theorists. She refers disparagingly to Faye's paranoid reading of the Masonic connection, repeatedly misspelling Faye, ignoring the diuresis over the Y. Her statement is reminiscent of Crane Britton's dismissal of Nesta Webster's book on the French Revolution, quote, Frightened Tories like Mrs. Nesta Webster, end quote. She hastens to assure her readers that, quote, we can now dispense with conspiracy theories and still show the survival throughout the first half of the 18th century of a social world that was often, but not necessarily, Masonic, wherein some very dangerous ideas were in fact discussed and disseminated, end quote. She qualifies her book's thesis down to a bare minimum. Freemasonry is one possible source of several sources of revolutionary ideas, end quote. It seems not unreasonable to suggest that this social circuit was international in scope, while at the same time acknowledging that we still have a very imperfect account of the extent to which some Masonic lodges, under certain circumstances, would encourage a radical critique of the existing order. End quote. But she had already gone away. But she had already gone way too far, and her book's mild thesis, intelligently argued, was savagely ridiculed by one reviewer as a quote, farrago of pretentious and portentous moonshine. Mention Freemasonry as an organization that spread the ideas of revolution, let alone provided the revolution's organizational backbone, and you risk losing your academic reputation. Historians know this, so they take great care to avoid transgressing this crucial professional boundary. Even great care is sometimes insufficient, as Dr. Jacob learned. Forrest MacDonald's three volumes on the origin of the Constitution have become nearly definitive. There is not a word in any of them on Freemasonry, despite the fact that Novus Ordo Seclorum 1985 is subtitled The Intellectual Origins of the Constitution. Wilson McCary McWilliams' book, The Idea of Fraternity in America, almost 700 pages long, devotes only one brief paragraph to pre-Constitution Freemasonry, and then only as a social club made up of outsiders. Quote, its members were less comfortable in the established order than were the elites, end quote. There are pages of paintings and sculptures of George Washington in Jerry and Gary Willis's Cincinnatus, but not one example of him dressed in his Masonic garb and not one reference to the craft. Washington was the man who led the Military Society of Cincinnati and who had as his subordinate generals only those initiated into Masonry. This was the man who gave Lafayette a separate command only after the latter had been initiated personally by Washington. The army, the army was only functioning was the only functioning national civil hierarchy in the Patriot cause. It was an ideal recruiting ground for Washington, was the source of promotions, positive sanctions. He made sure his senior officers were Freemasons. This was the man who had at least 10 military Masonic lodges in his army. Stephen Bullock's summary is significant. Quote, Fraternal ties among the officers helped create and sustain the sense of common purpose necessary for the survival of the Continental Army and thus the winning of the war. The success of this esprit de corps would be represented in the post-war society of the Cincinnati, an attempt to continue the officer's corporate identity using language and symbols that recalled Masonry earlier significance. End quote. The textbooks are nonetheless silent. How many people have ever heard of the Temple of Virtue? This was the building in Newburgh, New York, that was constructed on Washington's instructions. 
for his headquarters and for a meeting place for the troop lodges. It was in this building that he warned the members of the Society of Cincinnati to be prudent in their demands, thus cutting short a potential military coup. The textbooks are silent on all of this. The Boston Tea Party There is an occasional ex exception to the blackout. Page Smith's People's History of the Revolution, suggestively titled A New Age Now Begins, does mention that Joseph Warren and Paul Revere were Freemasons. He also mentions that something almost never seen in a textbook, that Boston's famous Green Dragon Tavern, which was the central meeting place of the Patriots, had been chosen for a reason. Quote, this tavern was doubtless chosen because Patriot organizer Joseph Warren was also the Grand Master of the Boston Masonic Lodge, and the Masons had their headquarters there, end quote. Esther Forbes, in her well-received yet popular biography of Revere, describes the background of the Boston Tea Party, where colonials d dressed up as Indians and tossed into the harbor the tax tea that had brought to Boston on board British ships. Quote, Two of Revere's clubs, the North Caucus and St. Andrew's Lodge, are known to have a hand, had a hand in it. The Masons had met the night, of the, the night the ships arrived, but their records read, quote, Large adjourned on account of few brothers present. Envy consignee of tea took the brethren's time, end quote. This night, the record's even briefer. Lodge closed on an account of a few members present. St. Andrew had by this time bought the old Green Dragon. This was a large brick tavern standing on Union Street. More revolutionary eggs were hatched in this dragon's nest than any other spot in Boston. Other lodges and radical clubs were beginning to meet there, sheltered by the inviolable secrecy of the Masons. It was at the Green Dragon the plan to destroy the tea was perfected and either there or at Benjamin Eade's house, Paul Revere and others put on their disguises, end quote. The immediate aftermath of the Tea Party in 1773 was the closing of Boston Harbor by the British, what soon became known as the Intolerable Acts. Sam Adams' committees of correspondence went to work. This led to an intercolonial organized outrage. More than any other single event, this launched the revolution. And who were these Boston men? In a specialized historical monograph on Boston politics during this era, we are treated to one brief tantalizing reference, quote, at least eight of the 21 members also belonged to the North End Caucus, a private political club which met regularly in several Boston congregations in both of Boston's Masonic lodges, the fire companies of several wards, as well as a variety of private clubs, end quote. But that is all. Even such brief re references as, the, as these are few and far between. The average student of American history is never told that the committees of correspondence and committees of safety were very often headed by Masons, held their meetings in lodges or taverns that served as lodge headquarters, and became leaders of the provincial assemblies. In Philadelphia in 1775, where the first Continental Congress met, there were approximately 1,000 Masons, although we do not know on which side they fell out initially. As the war progressed, the ancient lodges became dominant in Philadelphia. Bernard Fay. For decades, the one major exception to this historical blackout of the American Revolution by academic historians was the French historian Bernard Fay. His book, Revolution and Freemasonry, 1935, went into many of these details. He reported that Franklin, as deputy postmaster general for the English colonies in America, traveled extensively and joined other, joined together Masonic lodges. Franklin's American Philosophical Society, a colonial model of the Royal Society, founded in 1741, was made up mostly of Freemasons. Perhaps most important, Franklin set up a number of Freemason-owned newspapers around the colonies, including John Pete Zenger's New York Journal and Eden's Boston Gazette. They explained why, to, why it is that so many historians think that the Freemasons were politically irrelevant in this area. 
the lodges were enjoined on both sides of the Atlantic to avoid politics, but they could set up an ans- they could set up ancillary organizations that could get involved politically. They were careful to quote they were careful careful to keep politics as much as possible outside the regular meetings of the lodges, but their political influence was based on the fact that in America a lodge meant a tavern. All lodges met in alehouses, inns, and taverns. Most of them owned their meeting places or met in a building which was owned by a member of the lodge. The lodge itself held its ceremonies discreetly and formally in a back room, after which the members gathered informally and less directly in the main room to drink, and when the lodge was not in session, to speak and act without restraint, end quote. Maybe even, maybe even toss a bit of tea into the harbor. Conventional historians do not consider much such matters because a few of them know anything because few of them know anything about Freemasonry, and those who have heard anything about it view it primarily as a social club. They have never asked themselves the obvious question, what are the institutional connections that make possible a successful revolution? They have been taught by traditional historiography to look at at political events or military events. They have been taught by Marx to examine class alignments and by Charles Beard and his intellectual heirs to examine the personal economic self-interest of the participants. Historians in recent years have been far more willing to consider the influence of religious ideas, but they have been trained to play down the, quote, great man theory of history. They have been taught, above all, that serious, reputable scholars do not raise the question of conspiracies. Special interest groups, yes. Elites, yes. Just not conspiracies. Why is this? I think the reason is theological. Conspiracies point too closely to personalism as the basis of historical change, and personalism points to a God who brings about sanctions in history. Historians prefer to write about historical forces and economic classes, usually that only that only non-academic, usually only non-academicians, such as Nesta Webster, ask the forbidden questions, and for their indiscreet behavior, they are written off by professional historians. In Crane Britain's bibliography, he acknowledged only Webster's less scholarly, less detailed book, Secret Societies and, Subser- and Subversive Movements, 1924. He conveniently ignored her masterpiece, The French Revolution, 1919, which presents a far more detailed case for what he sneers at as the plot theory of revolution. Britain knew better. His first published book was The Jacobins, 1931. He showed how closely they were associated with the Masonic Lodges of France. He knew. But he also knew enough to keep his mouth shut and his opinions conventional. To paraphrase, quote, just a bunch of a local good old bourgeois boys looking for a few business deals, good food, and lively discussion, end quote. Nesta Webster's Blind Spot. Nesta Webster... Webster's influence on Rush Juni is very strong in this independent republic. He relies heavily on her book, The French Revolution, to explain those events. He also falls into the same trap that she did. He concentrates his expose on the evils of French Grand Orient masonry, but deliberately ignores the mild-mannered apostasy of Anglo-Saxon masonry. Rush Juni and Webster were not the first critics of the Grand Orient masonry to fall into this trap. So did John Robison, whose Proofs of a Conspiracy, 1798, along with Abbe Borel's book, Memoirs Illustrating the History of Jacobinism, 1797, was an early source of the story of the connections between secret societies and the French Revolution. Robeson's was the first book to gain wide attention on the subject in the colonies. It launched a major anti-French and anti-Masonic movement, along, especially among Federalists in New England. With respect to French Freemasonry, in a postscript to his book, Robinson dis- wrote disparagingly of the frippery, profligacy, and impiety of Grand Orient Masonry. 
In contrast to French masonry, he said, masonry has been retained in Britain in its original form, simple and unadorned, and the lodges have remained scenes of innocent merriment or meetings of charity and beneficence. Webster echoed Robinson, quote, British masonry, by taking its stand on patriotism and respect for religion, necessarily tends to unite men of all classes and therefore offers a formidable, bul formidable bulwark against the forces of revolution. Any attacks on British masonry, as at present constituted and directed, are therefore absolutely opposed to the interests of the country. This was also the attitude of virtually all the American revolution. End quote. This was also the attitude of virtually all the American revolution's leaders regarding colonial masonry. Naively, she wrote on the next page regarding the Masonic rite of the self-maledictory blood oath, which she dismissed as something that is not inherent in Freemasonry. Quote, in the opinion of M. Copen Albancelli, the abolition of the oath would go far to prevent penetration of British Masonry by the secret societies. End quote. That comment would apply equally well to the Grand Orient Masonry. What she failed to grasp is this. The heart of Freemasonry is its oath. It was Freemasonry's top-down hierarchical system of bureaucratic authority coupled with its self-maledictory oath of secrecy, obedience, and loyalty that provided Adam Weishaupt and his Illuminist conspirators with the organizational system and source of infiltration that they had sought. Weishaupt saw Freemasonry as an organizational structure that paralleled the tightly knit Jesuit order that had trained him. No one's writings have made clearer Weishaupt's strategy of subversion than Mr. Web Mrs. Webster's. Like the patriotic colonists of 1776, Webster also failed to recognize that Anglo-Saxon Masonry's universalism led to the subversion of Christian civilization. French Masonry's open hostility, hostility to absolutism led to open revolution, but subversion by stealth is no less a threat to an existing social order than subversion by revolution. Stealth calls less attention to itself. Historians are less prepared to admit the existence of stealth. They prefer to explain revolutions by an appeal to impersonal social forces. Conclusion I have called the convention a coup. I have argued that Masonic influence was important both in terms of the philosophy of the delegates and their membership in the lodges. If the entire nation had been Masonic, then this would not have been a coup. But very few colonists were Freemasons. Prior to the Revolutionary War, there were about 200 lodges in 13 colonies. Their combined membership was somewhere between 1,500 and 5,000, yet the population of the nation was about 2.5 million. By 1800, there were perhaps 16,000 members. Thus, to argue that the Constitution was essentially Masonic is necessarily to argue for a conspiracy. Colonial Freemasonry was also one of the major components of the American Revolution, and especially of the Constitutional Settlement. On this point, Rush Judy remained silent, almost as if he has been afraid to raise the question. Had he pursued it, he would have found his thesis regarding the Christian roots of the Constitution seriously threatened. Christians at the state conventions ratified the Constitution. They were unaware of the covenantal implications of their decision. The defenders of the document were able to appeal to a common body of opinion regarding religious freedom and the supposed tyranny of Christian creeds. This anti-creedalism was a heritage of the pietism and revivalism of the middle third of the 18th century. The conspirators presented to the electorate, to the electorate a supposedly creedless covenant. There are also no creedless covenants devoid of any explicit religious oath. The Christians failed to recognize the true nature of the inescapable implicit oath, the sovereignty of the people, meaning the official sovereignty of five Supreme Court judges and the real sovereignty of a massive, faceless national bureaucracy. 
The manifestation of both these new sovereigns appeared within a single generation. The decisions of the Federalist Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall and the advent of the Federalist Party dominated civil service. The conspirators were successful. In retrospect, Americans called them the Founding Fathers. They were surely founders. They sought to give Americans a new inheritance. What they did was to appropriate an older inheritance in the name of a new family of man. It was the theft of a nation by the spiritual heirs of Roger Williams. One man had understood this in 1788. We do not know his name. He signed his essay, David, one of the few instances of any author in the debate over the ratification of the Constitution who used a biblical pseudonym. He was a resident of Connecticut. His comments appeared in the March 7, 1788 issue of the Massachusetts Gazette. He reminded his readers that throughout history, civil governments had called upon God to defend them. People had long understood the corporate threat of the negative sanctions of God. Quote, it has been generally, if not always, a fundamental article that moral offenses should, would be punished by the deity, even if they escaped the laws of human society, unless satisfaction was made to the sovereign of the universe for the violation of good order. End quote. He also reminded them that the states had always had fast days and other frequent and public acknowledgments of our independence upon the deity. Speaking of Connecticut, he insisted, never did any people possess a more ardent love of liberty than the people of this state. Yet that very love of liberty has induced them to adopt a religious test, which requires all public officers to be of some Christian Protestant persuasion and to abjure all foreign authority. Thus, religious religion secures our independence as a nation and attaches the citizens to our own government." End quote. The problem, in David's view, was that the new nation was about to initiate, imitate the government of Rhode Island, or as he referred to that province, our next neighbors. As editor Herbert J. Storing comments, quote, This is one of the rare statements in the, in the Federalist-Anti-Federalist debate concerning the widely agreed upon political excesses of Rhode Island and her re religious toleration, end quote. David foresaw that if the new nation adopted as a civil model the anti-covenantal, anti-oath contractualism of Rhode Island's political theory, it would eventually become like Rhode Island. That thought terrified him. The result would be tyranny. Quote, We have now seen what have been the principles generally adopted by mankind, and to what degree they have been adopted in our own state. Before we decide in favor of our practice, let us see what has been the success of those who have made no public provision for religion. Unluckily, we have only to consult our next neighbors. In consequence of this public inattention, they derive the vast benefit of being able to do whatever they please without any compunction. Taught from their infancy to ridicule our formality as the effect of hypocrisy, they have no principles of restraint but laws of their own making, and from such laws may heaven defend us. If this is if this is the success that attends leaving religion too swift wholly for itself, we shall be at no loss to determine that it is not more difficult to build an elegant house with tools to work with than it is to establish a durable government without the public protection of religion. What the system is which is most proper for our circumstances will not take long to determine. It must be that with it must be that which has adopted the purest moral principles and which is interwoven in the laws and constitution of our country and upon which are founded the habits of our people. Upon this foundation, we have established a government of influence and opinion, and therefore secured by the affections of the people. And when this foundation is removed, a government of mere force must arise. End quote. David was a voice crying in the wilderness, or more to the point, he was a voice crying in the promised land, warning people against departing into the wilderness, the Rhode Island wilderness.
Quote by Edmund S. Morgan, 1988. It was Madison who came up with the remedy that ultimately prevailed, the United States Constitution, though it did not take quite the form that he initially hoped for, as he and his contemporaries groped their way toward it at the great Constitutional Convention of 1787. That convention, which Madison was instrumental in bringing about, did not conform to the ideal prescription for stimulating an exercise of constituent power by the people, for the members were chosen by the state legislatures, not directly by popular vote. But even before the convention met, Madison recognized that it could achieve the objectives he had in mind for it only by appealing to a popular sovereignty not hitherto fully recognized to the people of the United States as a whole. They, could, they alone could be thought to stand superior to the people of any single state. And what Madison had most directly in view was to overcome the, deficiency of the deficiencies of the locally oriented representatives who sat in the state legislatures. To that end, he envisioned a genuine national government resting for its authority not on the state governments and not even on the peoples of the several states considered separately, but on an American people, a people who constitute a separate and superior entity capable of conveying to a national government an authority that would necessarily impinge on the authority of the state governments. The full implications of what he was going to propose were not at first apparent even to Madison himself. As the English House of Commons in the, in the 1640s had invented a sovereign people to overcome a sovereign king, Madison was inventing a sovereign American people to overcome the sovereign states. End quote. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.